1945, um, right before World War II ended, C.S. Lewis, he published an essay that um, I wanted to bring uh, to your attention. Uh, And in this essay, he invites us to step into, sort of imagine stepping into a dark tool shed on a very warm, bright summer day. And as the door sort of closes behind you, you find yourself immersed in darkness, except for one beam of light that's coming through uh, the building. And with its specks of floating dust, the beam is the most striking uh, thing that you see. Um, But as you move toward it, you find yourself not just looking at the beam, but really looking along it. And in that moment, the entire previous picture, it instantly changes because you begin to see what is outside. You begin to see the light and what the light is shining on, the trees, the animals, the flowers, lit up by the summer sun. And a friend of mine was um, sort of connecting this to Advent, the season that we've been in the last several weeks. And he said this, basically, that the message of Advent, that God has come, that God is coming again, is not merely that we're caught in a dark shed and a beam of hope has pierced the darkness, although that is true enough. The message of Advent, the message of Advent is that we are called to step into that beam through placing our faith in Jesus. We step into the light and we begin to see an entirely new world, an entirely new kingdom that has broken into the darkness and that one day when Jesus returns, he will break down that wall and we will step out together into the light forever with him. That is Advent. That is the message of Advent. This is what we're in this season. Sign me up, right? I need that kind of hope. I don't know about you. An entirely new creation under his rule and reign forever. That's the hope of Advent. Um, For the last several months, uh, we've been making our way through the book of Mark. And Mark is sort of the quintessential gospel about discipleship, following Jesus. And we've been asking this question every week. What does it mean to follow Jesus today? What does it look like to follow him in the 21st century, to live under his rule and reign, to step into that light? And today we're going to explore what Jesus teaches about his second advent. At Christmas we celebrate his first coming, his first advent. But today we're going to think about his second coming. Historically, Advent was really the season of the second coming. Christmas, remember that really long song called the 12 Days of Christmas that goes on for about an hour? That reminds us that Christmas, historically in the church, was a season of 12 days. But Advent, leading up to it, was really a season focused on the second coming of Christ. So today we're going to focus in on what it means to follow Jesus, to listen to his teaching about the end of the world, the end of the world. Should be cheerful, right? Um, But just to, before we get into it, just to point to the elephant, right? 
you know, there's a wide spectrum of opinions and beliefs about how the end of the world is going to shake out, even in this room. First of all, that's okay. It's good to have different opinions as long as we're using the scriptures to inform what we believe about the end. That's what we want for you as your pastors, that you would, you would look at the scriptures and say, okay, what does he say? What does Jesus in particular say about his second coming? So we're going to look at that today. And just three sort of headings that are going to kind of guide um, us through his teaching from Mark chapter 13. First, we're going to identify what he does teach. Then we're going to see briefly what he does not teach. And then lastly, how we should prepare for the end of the world. What he teaches, what he doesn't teach and how we should prepare for it. So if you're able, with that said, I wonder if you can stand for the, we- the reading of God's word. Listen to what he says to us. Our central text for today is found in Mark 13, 24 through 37. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels, gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as the branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near the very gates. Truly, I say to you, these generations will not pass away until these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey, when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This This is is the the word word of of the the Lord. Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. As we begin to hear, I'd love to just pray once more um, that the Lord would bless the words of my mouth. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. And so, Lord, I pray that by your spirit that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable to you and pleasing to you. O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Um, So what does he say? What does he teach about the end of the world? Before we hone in on that, I actually wanted to zoom out a little bit. Um, You know, we didn't get to read all of chapter 13, but if you did, you would notice that there's kind of two main sections to it. There's two main sort of points that Jesus is making. He teaches us about the end of the world, as you know, but he also teaches us about the destruction of Jerusalem and the or the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. So those are the two main things that Jesus teaches in chapter 13. And that's really important because I think a lot of confusion about 
Jesus is teaching about the end of the world is that those two things often get conflated and we get confused. Is he talking about the temple here? Is he talking about the end of the world? And sometimes we, we conflate those things. We confuse those things. But, we, but uh, I think scholars are right to say we need to separate those two things out. And you'll see uh, as we move along. The first thing Jesus teaches about is the end of the world. Let's look at verse 24 again. But in those days, after that tribulation, that's sort of Jesus' um, key word about the end of the world. He uses that several times. He says this, The sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heaven, heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. So this is a picture. Jesus is giving us a picture of this sort of cosmic cataclysm. The, the sun, the moon, the stars falling, everything going dark. And this same language actually appeared hundreds of years earlier in the book of Isaiah in chapter 13 in God's judgment on the people of Babylon. So they had exiled God's people, and so God said, I will judge them for it. And he uses this picture of the sun being darkened, the lights going out. But Jesus here is saying, when he comes in final judgment, he's coming to judge the whole world, not just one nation, when he returns. And then in verse 26, we see that he will come on the clouds with great power and glory. And this is almost an exact echo from Daniel chapter 7, where it says that one like the Son of Man will come on the clouds and that he will be given dominion over all the peoples of the earth and that all the peoples of the earth would serve him. So Jesus is saying, in effect, that he is the one whom the prophets of old foretold coming from heaven, who will come in from heaven in great power and glory. But why? Why is he returning? Yes, he's coming. He's, he's claiming to be divine. He's claiming to be God himself, to return, to judge the world. But why? Verse 27 spells it out for us. Angels are sent to gather his elect from all corners of the globe. Yes, there will be judgment on those outside of Jesus, those who haven't stepped into the light by faith will be judged. But for those who belong to Jesus, he is saying, I'm coming to gather you from all corners of the earth to spend eternity with him, which will be better than we can possibly imagine. That's what he's saying. So who, who are these elect people? You know, the elect people can sound sort of like this exclusive bunch, right? These really fancy bunch. I loved how Rex said, you know, we're here, we're a bunch of sinners. And he said he's the capital S, but I would argue I am, for sure. Okay, so who are these elect people then? Throughout the scriptures, election, God's choosing of some people, God's choosing to place his grace on them and to awaken faith in them, God does that unconditionally. He doesn't look for goodness in people. He doesn't look for, you know, brilliance or, or he chooses because he chooses. Let me give you an example from Deuteronomy chapter 7 all the way back in the Pentateuch. God says this, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. 
It was not because you were more in number than any of the people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. And this sounds like 2 Timothy chapter 1, who has saved us and called us to a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. From all eternity, God chooses the least likely people. This is who he's coming back for, the least likely. In other words, the elect are those sinners who have chosen, who have been chosen, and therefore choose to place their faith in the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The elect person is someone who has turned from their own way to follow Jesus, the conquering king. The elect person is anyone who believes that they need a savior or they're doomed to spend eternity in hell. That's the elect person. So what does this mean? It means that no matter how divided and messy the church is at times and throughout history, we know that it has been. And and no matter how diverse or widespread we have become, there are Christians literally in every country and every corner of the globe today. No matter how diverse we are or widespread, God's people throughout time and space will converge on a single point and his name is Jesus. This is what Jesus teaches about his coming that he will bring us together from all corners of the globe throughout time and space to be with him forever. This is what he's teaching us. Let that sink in. So what is he saying? He's saying that his second advent is going to be quite unlike his first. At Christmas, we remember that Jesus came humbly to earth. He was born in a barn. But when he comes again, he will come in furious, in extravagant majesty and glory. The world didn't recognize him the first time around, but we cannot escape him the second. It says in, you know, Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord when he comes again. So let this shape your eschatology, your view of the end of the world. To remember, it is not primarily about destruction, but about election, about God choosing, refusing to be God without us, right? As Will Willimon said, he refuses to be without us. Let that inform you that it's not about signs, it's about salvation. Let that inform your view of the end, that he will come again in power, to renew all things, to gather his people unto himself. So he starts by talking about the end of the world, but then he shifts gears and he talks about the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple. And we know this because in verse 30, it says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So he's not talking about the end here for surely, you know, Peter isn't around anymore. So he's talking about the destruction of the temple and he uses this this analogy in in verses 28 through 31 that like the fig tree which which blossoms were kind of like a sign that summer was near, he's saying the destruction of the temple 
about 30 years later, about 40 years later, was a sign of the beginning of the end. So fig tree blossoms were a sign that summer was close, but not yet. The destruction of the temple was a sign that the end was near, but not yet. You know, the, the Jewish temple was the center of Jewish life. And so when, you know, the disciples were so worried that the world would literally end when it was destroyed, but Jesus corrected their thinking. He's saying the end is close, but it's not here. It's not yet. So this is what he says about the end, but I want to quickly touch upon what he does not say about the end. Let me ask you a question. In your own thinking, in your own understanding about the end of the world, what does Jesus disrupt in what he teaches us here? Think about that for a minute. You know, you've seen movies like, I don't know, 2012 and um, Left Behind perhaps, but what, is, what does Jesus teach here that disrupts some of that view, some of those pictures in your mind about the end of the world? Think about that. And let me ask you another one as you're thinking. What is surprisingly absent in the pictures that you have of the end of the world and the what Jesus teaches you? What's absent? Listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. The great doctrine of the second coming, of the second advent, has in a sense fallen in disrepute because... This tendency on the part of some to be more interested in the how and when of the second coming rather than in the fact of the second coming. Jesus wants us to be more interested in the reality that he is coming back than when and how. What are the signs? He wants us to major on his coming rather than what it will look like and when it will take place. How many of the contentions, how many of the sad divisions that we sung about earlier in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel would cease if we listened to Jesus here? That we would focus on the reality that he will return rather than on the when, the signs. In our last few minutes, I want us to think a little bit about how we might prepare because Jesus then shifts gear again to the end of the world. How can we prepare for his coming? Uh, so nobody knew uh, what would happen when the, when the clock struck midnight on uh, January 1st, 2000. Remember Y2K? Man, it was bad, right? It was a total dud, thankfully. But like many of you, you put canned goods away. You, you, know, you stockpiled some, some candy bars. I don't know what else we did. Uh, beans, water. We were ready for anything, even nothing. You know, it's good to be prepared. It's good to be prepared. So what is Jesus, how does he want us to prepare? for the reality that he will return in power and glory. Let's look what he says. Verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey 
when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeepers to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. So four times at least in this passage, Jesus tells us to stay awake for his coming. But Jesus is not calling us to insomnia, right? Thankfully. So what does this word mean? Uh, in the original language, it, it could also mean to be alert, to keep on guard, to keep watch over something. And right, he uses this parable of the master going away and he, he, he puts doorkeepers in charge to stay awake for their master's return, their, his imminent coming again. So a couple months ago, my uh, mom, uh, we celebrated her 70th birthday and uh, we, we pulled out all the stops. You know, it was a big day. And so we had a bunch of surprises up our sleeves and my dad, being my dad, he spoiled pretty much all of them. He, my, my dad cannot keep a secret. And so she figured out a bunch of stuff that we had planned. She kind of got it out of him. I don't know what happened. Anyway, he's a pastor, so I guess he's, it's good that he's not a good liar. So anyway, because she kept asking him point-blank questions. He's like, I don't know. Ah. You know. So she, she figured out every single surprise except for one. Okay? One surprise, and that was that my brother was going to fly in from San Diego to surprise her for her big day. And so the night before, you know, she, you know, we were there and we were hanging out. Brother wasn't there yet. And she's like, yeah, this is going to be a cool birthday. I, you know, this is happening, this is happening. And we knew that she didn't know. And guess what she did that night? She slept like a baby. She slept great. I knew my brother was coming. She didn't. So I stayed up. I waited for John to get in at midnight so I could let him in the door because there was a surprise. I was awake because I was waiting for him. She was asleep because she thought there were no more surprises. And this is why C.S. Lewis could say, precisely because we cannot predict the moment, we must be ready at all moments. So Jesus is calling us to this perpetual readiness as disciples, as followers of Jesus, because nobody knows. Nobody knows the day or the hour, not even the angels, not even the Son of God himself. Wait, Jesus doesn't know? You know, a lot of uh, cons uh, scholars, they actually question this part. They're like, hey, Jesus is omniscient. How could he not know something? You know, and I, I can hear that argument. But if you really take a step back and you, and you look at Mark and kind of the gospel teachings as a whole, something that we see exhibited throughout is Jesus' trust, undying trust in the Father throughout. What does this mean? Not knowing or choosing maybe to not know, is what kept him in lockstep with the Father. It kept him trusting the Father. For the sake of relationship with the Father, 
He chose, perhaps, to not know. And this means that he was awake. Those who are insistent on their own predictions about the future, about when Jesus will come, what will it look like, Jesus is helping us to see that they're actually asleep. There are no more surprises. We don't have to trust the Father. We can sleep. But those who are awake, he's saying doorkeepers keep watch until their master returns, trusting their Father all the way. You know, we're thinking about this language of being awake. I think many of us have been sleepy. I think I've been sleepy too. And sleepiness doesn't just come from trying to figure it all out. That is one way that we can stay asleep is trying to have it all figured out, even more than Jesus, apparently. Another way we can be asleep is because life is overwhelming. Like Allison was helping us to to realize that this season is so hard. In so many ways, Omicron is here. And uh, where is Jesus anyway? You know, he, he's been gone a long time, and, you know, we've been living between his advents, right, in this already, um, but not yet. This is where we are situated as Christians. We live between his advents. He's already come. He already died. He rose again. He sent his spirit. He gave us his word. He gave us his church. He saved us. He's already done those things, but the world is still broken and there's still so much sin in here and out there. And so living the Christian life, following Jesus, sometimes it's a lot easier to just close our eyes and just try to power through. You know, the call to stay awake, it can feel impossible at times. But here's the thing. It felt the same way for his first disciples, the ones who saw him face to face. You know, in chapter 14, just one chapter later, just a few hours probably later than when Jesus is teaching in all of that discourse, he goes to the garden. And what does he tell his disciples to do? Stay awake and pray. And that's physical, right? Like, don't hear me. Again, this is a a little bit different, right? This is a physical staying awake. And he's calling us to a more of a spiritual um, awakening. And yet, what does Jesus do when his followers, those who saw him face to face and watched him do miracles, and when he said to stay awake, they fell asleep three times. They couldn't stay awake. Why? Life was overwhelming. Could you imagine how hard it was for them? how difficult it would have been to follow Jesus in those early days when you have a target on your back, when Jesus kept saying, I'm going to die soon. Wait, my best friend, but also the Son of God is going to die? Could you imagine the emotional toll, the exhaustion? So they couldn't stay awake. But what does Jesus do? Does he lash out on them? The next day, he died for them. And three days after that, he rose for them. And so if you're sleepy today, if you kind of just closed your mind, closed your heart to the reality that Jesus will return because life is too hard, Jesus loves you. He will not turn his back on you. 
He will awaken you again. He will awaken me. I've been sleepy too. But he loves you enough to give you all that you need to faithfully watch. Hear me. He doesn't just forgive you when you fall asleep. He does. But he loves you enough to empower you to stay awake. He wants you to trust the Father. And he gives us all that we need in the gospel, in the power of the Spirit, and in community to trust the Father while we wait for Jesus' return. He stayed awake. Jesus stayed awake trusting his Father so we could do the same. That is good news. That is good news. Yes, you're forgiven, but you're also given the power to watch while we wait. So what does he empower us to do in our last few moments? Doorkeepers don't just sit on our hands waiting. We don't just sort of, you know, stargaze, even though stargazing is cool, but that's not how we wait for Jesus. That's not how we watch for Jesus. Doorkeepers look for Jesus in specific ways while we're waiting for him to return. And I want to show you just a really brief clip where a fellow PCA pastor in Nashville, he, he teaches us how our eschatology, our view of the end, should lead us to a certain kind of action. Listen to what he says. Keep this in mind. When Jesus separates the sheep from the goats on that great day, he's not asking them catechism questions. Wow. He's not asking them uh, Q&A one from the Heidelberg, you know, catechism of Westminster Confession. And, you know, I love the, I love the confessions, yeah. but that ain't the questions Jesus is asking. <laughs> Jesus is asking questions about, you know, when I was hungry, mm. you fed me. Amen. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you came to visit me. He's asking the, he's asking the ethical question. The ethical question, and of course, the ethical question assumes the faith question, but it says if you have this faith, it's going to work out in you feeding some people, clothing some people, seeing about some people, taking care of some people, advocating for some people. And so as we think about theology, as we think about the way we're going to do discipleship in the church, we got to keep in mind that we are preparing people to meet Jesus. And when Jesus asks them, you know, if, 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 I, I just can't, I couldn't imagine if Jesus looking at me and saying, well, you pastored all of these people. Why didn't you teach them how to feed people? Why didn't you teach them how to advocate for the, for the, for the oppressed? Because mm. you knew I was going to ask them that question. Why, why, why do they know the confession so well, but they don't know how to serve people? Yeah. They, don't know how to, they, don't know how to, they don't know how to reach down and pick up the oppressed. Yeah. Because those are the questions Jesus is going to ask. So I, I, it's a strange thing that people have, that it's, you know, this is not like this is like in one book of the Bible. This is all throughout the Bible. Throughout the whole text. Throughout the whole text. I yeah. mean, you have to be reading a different kind of Bible. Yeah. Amen. Caring for those in need is how we watch looking for Jesus in your neighbor who is a shut-in, seeing Jesus in their eyes is how we look for Jesus until he returns. Looking for Jesus in your brother that is just so annoying, who just gets under your skin, but choosing to love them when they're in need, 
This is how we look for Jesus. Jesus says, as you do unto the least of these, you do unto me. Are we looking for Jesus in the faces of those in need? This is, this is why we're partnering with Black Mountain Children's Home. This is, this is why we send teams to Honduras year after year. Because we're trying to do this. We're trying to heed his teaching. We're trying to listen to Jesus. And serving others is one way that we watch for him. In addition to gospel ethics, Acts chapter 1 teaches us that gospel proclamation is another way, uh, is another priority for gospel or for doorkeepers. Acts 1 When they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. See, he's saying it again. No one knows, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Yes, to Hendersonville, to Mills River, to Asheville and beyond. He empowers us. Look at what he says. Empowers us not to be experts in theology, but to be witnesses. What's a witness? Someone who has seen or heard something. That's all you have to do. Tell what you've seen. Tell what you've heard. If someone asks you, but also live in such a way that you are given opportunities to share the hope that you have. Kindness, curiosity, humility. We're not experts, we're witnesses. And the Spirit empowers us to that end. Now, one question before we end. We've all been asking, why hasn't Jesus returned? He made it sound like it was going to be a couple weeks at most, you know? You know that God tells us in 2 Peter? He tells us exactly why he hasn't returned. This is so awesome. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. 2,000 years is like a couple days to this God. He's not on our time. His ways are not our ways. But see, he is tarrying out of love. Out of love for that sibling that you've been praying for for years. He is tarrying. He wants him or her to come to know him. He is patient. He is tarrying for your mom who just doesn't want anything to do with Jesus because maybe she was so hurt by the church. You know, he's tarrying for her. He's tarrying for your neighbor who's indifferent to Christianity or maybe even hostile. Anybody have those neighbors? You don't have to raise your hand. I have some of them. He's tarrying for them. He's patient. He wants them to come to repentance. He doesn't want them to be separated from him for all eternity. Do you see Do you realize that he's tarrying for you? Some of you in this room have been coming to church for a long time, but maybe you haven't really trusted Jesus. Some of you are brand new and you're like, whoa, this is intense. 
I won't apologize for sharing the good news with you. Jesus is better than anything. He's better than a million dollars in the bank. He's better than a wonderful portfolio. He's better than kids who are healthy and grandkids that want to come see you. He's better than any other person and he's better than any other story. Do you see he's tearing? He's been tearing for you. In 1970, my dad was a pagan man. I use that word intentionally because he wasn't a follower of Jesus. He was worshiping all sorts of other things. But Jesus chased after him. Jesus chose him. And around January 1 or 2, 1971, my dad became a Christian. He placed his faith in Jesus and said, Jesus, I want you. I don't deserve you, but I want you. Please save me. Come into my life. And you know what? 50 years later, my dad is now a pastor for the last 44 years. And I literally would not be on the stage if my dad had not been saved all those years before. Think about this. Don't just think about your own salvation. Think about who might come through you if you turn to Jesus today. If you turn to Jesus this Christmas, you will receive the greatest gift in the whole world. So I want to invite you to turn to him. Let's stay awake, friends, to his coming. Or maybe you're waking up to his love, and for this Christmas, you'll take your first watch as a doorkeeper. Let's pray to that end. Holy Spirit, come and do a work that I could never do. I can't convince anyone in this room to turn to you. Only you can. It's your choice. And so, Lord, I pray that you would choose, that you would call, that you would save. Lord, many of us are asleep. Many of us would, are settled for that dark room. We don't want to look at the light. We don't want to see what's beyond it, let alone let, believe that the Lord, you will come and break down the wall someday when you renew all things. Lord, we're asleep. We often refuse to look for you in the face of other people in need. But Father, Christ has come. Christ has died. Christ has risen. And Christ will come again. We pray in his name. Amen. Advent is a rehearsal for his return. So thanks for leading us in rehearsal. Thanks for leading us in rehearsal. Uh, friends, Christmas Eve, it's coming. 4.30. We hope that you'll join us. There are some elements of that service that are over a year in the making. Not to mention the, the celebration that's 2,000 years in the making, if not before. So we hope that you'll join us on 430 Kids. You're going to love it. Meanwhile, if you'll join us out in the gallery in a moment, there'll be a little brass ensemble work, too, you might enjoy also. So go with this word of benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, 
our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, amen. Go in peace.